Okay, and a very good evening to you, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. I'm excited to be back home and broadcasting with you guys again. I had a great week off, uh, but uh, but I missed hanging out with you guys. So I'm glad to get back to uh, tearing our way through the text, especially since in our last class we got right up to the to the song and then had to stop. So. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing the cat and the fiddle, and I heard that um, uh, the 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 our our group of minstrels here before class was uh, uh, performing the cat and the fiddle for you. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna play uh, the arrangement that we had made up for us uh, uh, here uh, by Steve this past week, as he said he would do last time. So uh, thanks for that, Steve. I really appreciated that. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna play that. Hopefully you'll be able. I think I have things set up so that you can hear it. Um, but, uh, cool. So, all right, I'm going to, um, so tonight's class is called Being Inconspicuous Very Badly. Uh, uh, Frodo does a pretty good job of showing you how not to go on the lam, uh, if ever you yourself are running for your life and hiding. Um, don't do it like Frodo did. Um, but, uh, before we start, two quick, um, uh, two, two quick, uh, uh, announcements. Three. Three quick announcements. First, just to keep everybody um, in, to, to remind everybody or inform you if you don't know, uh, we're about to have daylight savings time this coming weekend. We change our clocks around here uh, this coming weekend. I know it's different in different countries and if you live in Arizona and that kind of thing. Um, but just keep in mind that we're going to do that. That means that uh, if you live... Uh, in a foreign country or in Arizona, then keep in mind that the the you know classes next week are going to be at a different time. So just be warned, things are going to change. So, um, uh, so daylight savings this coming Sunday. Second thing is next week. Yes, next week, March fifteenth is the deadline for the the call for papers, call for presentations uh, for Mythmoot. Uh, so if you want to come to Mythmoot five. Uh, and you're thinking about maybe giving a paper, wanting to propose a panel, uh, you know, suggesting some kind of activity, you can totally still do that. But the deadline is approaching. The deadline is March 15th, so you have until next week uh, to propose uh, something awesome for Mythmoot to uh, uh, contribute in that way to the awesomeness that is going to be Mythmoot 5, which I am so much looking forward to. So uh, just to keep in mind that that's, uh, that, that, is, that is on the way. Um, the second thing, sorry, I'm finding my, my volume is really high for some reason. It's, it's in my ear and I'm like, ah, I'm hearing music. Okay. Sorry. Um, the, uh, my third quick announcement, it's just a reminder that London Moot is coming. It is our next regional moot that is coming up April 28th in London. I encourage you to go to LondonMoot.com and, uh, and, uh, register if you can, if you can possibly make it over to London, um, so excited to get over to Europe and to get to hang out with some folks over there. So uh, I hope to be able to meet many of you. Um, so don't forget about that. All right, that's it. And I am ready for uh, uh, for some more discussion here tonight. Two, uh, two questions from the discussion board before we get back to the song. Um, this one is a, a bit of a flashback back to chapter one. In part, this is me still being 
feeling guilty about going so quickly through chapter one. But I also, I wanted to, I, this one just came in, but I wanted to respond to it because I actually spent, during the week that I was away, I spent a lot of time with this scene again. I sat down with chapter one uh, and was uh, was thinking a lot about Fellowship of the Ring chapter one while I was on vacation, like you do. And uh, so I was just, uh, I was just reading this passage really, really carefully a couple days before I got this question. So I was like, hey, I'm going to talk about it. So, um, uh, so Vranda was asking, in light of the fact that Bilbo held possession of the ring for of the One Ring for fifty plus years, if he had claimed the ring full on when he and Gandalf were having their spat at Bag End before he finally relented and gave the ring away, could he have bested Gandalf, or is the power of the ring dependent on the original power of the wearer? Was Gandalf ever worried? Okay, one, uh, Bilbo totally does claim the ring. Um, he claims that. Uh, 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 the ring as full on as it's possible to claim it. Um, in fact, that's the entire premise of what's going on through that whole scene. When you look at Bilbo's dialogue throughout that, um, what he's saying again and again is that the ring is mine. The ring is mine. I won't give it away. Um, you know, uh, this is why he he goes on to calling it his precious. Right? It is the mo- you know uh, articulating that it is the mo- not only just repeating. He's not just repeating Gollum. He's articulating that it's the most important thing in the world to him, right? Um, anyway, so so he does claim it. He totally claims it. Is Gandalf worried? Well, yeah, Gandalf's worried. Not worried that Bilbo's going to mop the floor with him because it's not going to. It's exactly Jake, exactly as you were just suggesting in the in the in the Twitch chat there. Gandalf is worried, but he's worried about Bilbo. He's not worried for his own self, right? So, um, is Bilbo able to? you know, make use of the power of the ring in order to dominate the wills of others? Is is he going to, uh, having claimed the ring, as, as again, he's clearly claiming the ring in as strong and thorough terms as is possible for him to do at that point. Um, having claimed the ring, is it possible for him to use its power to dominate the will of Gandalf? Um, no, he can't do that, just because he doesn't know how. Uh, remember, this is going to come up way down the road um, when Frodo is talking to Galadriel, right? And he's asking her, he's like, why... You know, uh, why are not like the the you know your thoughts laid bare before me, right? Because I have I'm I'm permitted to 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 wield the One Ring, and you know, like if you say Sauron will know all these things if he gets the One Ring, why don't I know him, right? I mean, it's a great question from Frodo, um, and you'll remember Galadriel's response is going to be, "You haven't tried, <laughs> don't try," she says, right? Um, that is, and, and she goes on to explain that she has to, he, he, in order to use the power of the ring like that, um, he would have to train his will to the domination of others, right? Uh, he has to get himself thinking in that way. Now, Bilbo claims the ring for himself, but he's never used the ring to try to dominate the will of others, right? Um, this sort of confrontation that he's having with Gandalf is the first time that that's ever even been anywhere close to on the table, right? Um, he's only, he had only, Bilbo had only ever tried to use the ring to make himself invisible and to vanish away, especially when the Sackville Baggins is, or goblins, or whatever, or dragons come by, right? So, um, anyway, so that's, that's, um, uh, so, so yes, so he does claim it, he does sort of use it, but he, do, you know, he, no, he's not gonna, and, and yes, it does, it is dependent on the original power of the wearer, um, not just anybody who picks up the ring has the ability to, to you know, overthrow Sauron with it. Um, one thing that I would sort of add at the risk of opening up a, a sort of a bigger can of worms here. Um, 
this is one of the things if I had to, you know, apart from the normal things, you know, uh, uh, like the horrible things done to Faramir and Treebeard and, and that kind of thing in the Peter Jackson adaptation of the Lord of the Rings. Um, if I had to complain about one other, you know, if I had to make a short list of things like sort of big picture things that I was disappointed by uh, in that adaptation, one of the things that I was most disappointed by, and it's kind of a sort of a small thing, and, and, and I don't usually talk about it that much, the choice that they made to merely say that the ring is non-functional for people, right? You know, that when, when people like Boromir would say, we should use the, the power of the ring against the enemy... Within the film adaptation, they were just like, oh, it, we can't. It just, it won't work for us, right? Like it's, you know, so that everybody like Boromir, who convinces themselves that they can take the ring and wield it, they are merely deluding themselves. Within film world, you know, within Peter Jackson's adaptation, that is a, a mere delusion on their part. They're absolutely fooling themselves because it is, in fact, impossible, for, apparently. We're told impossible for anybody but Sauron to use it, and that I think is a a very um, to me very very disappointing oversimplification of the situation. Right. The thing about the ring is that, of course, lots of people can use it. Anybody can use it. Right. It's just for many, they can't use it much or do much with it. They'll do much more harm to themselves than they'll do to anybody else. And you have to you have to you have to like attune yourself to the ring. Right. You have to get your own will to be doing the kinds of things that the ring wants you to do. Right. In order for you to gain in the power to do that. We know Frodo is going to grow. Frodo is going to come to a place where he can use the ring. Can he overthrow Sauron? No, no. Frodo's not going to be capable of overthrowing Sauron. But it is certainly possible um, that uh, uh, it is certainly possible that um, uh, others could. Right? Um, it's very clear. Galadriel could take the ring and overthrow Sauron. Gandalf could take the ring and overthrow Sauron. Aragorn could take the ring and overthrow Sauron. Denethor could make a good go of it. Um, better probably even than Saruman, who definitely thinks he could use the ring to overthrow Saruman. Um, so, um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, uh, yeah, exactly, JJ. That's exactly why Sauron is worried uh, when the host approaches the Black Gate, because he thinks that the new Ring Lord is coming for him. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, good. It's it is you know, mad violinist. I wonder. Um, it is an interesting question to me. What would have happened to Boromir? I mean, nothing good. Like you know, had Boromir taken the ring, he obviously you know things wouldn't have panned out. Did Boromir have the strength to actually accomplish? what his fantasy led him to think he could do? I would say no. I don't think he does. I think Faramir could. I don't think Boromir could. I think that Boromir is... Boromir's cool, but he's the wrong sort of cool. Uh, he does not have the wherewithal. Um, I think that uh, the, the implications of Den both Denethor and Faramir are different. They're more like Aragorn. They have, you know, the blood of Numenor runs true in them and stuff. Um... Uh, anyway, yeah, so I, I, Aragorn, clearly, Gandalf, clearly, um, Faramir, probably, Denethor, probably. Uh, remember, Denethor already does better even than Saruman um, with the Palantir, right? I mean, he's, uh, he kind of, I mean, they both get into trouble 
right? But when it comes to a, a sort of a struggle of wills with Sauron through the Palantir, um, Denethor kind of comes out better in that test. Uh, you know, he fails it, but doesn't bomb it as completely as Saruman does. Um, but um, anyway, we'll see. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now it's interesting. Fourth thought was suggesting that Denethor succeeds better than Saruman because he had a greater right to wield it as the lawful steward. Possibly. Yeah. It's foolish for the steward to look into the ring uh, of Minas Anor, but or the ring, the Palantir of uh, Minas Anor, But, um, but does he have the right to do it? Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. He does. And Aragorn does suggest that right matters. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, Matt says he suspects Boromir would have made it to the Black Gate after defeating the Witch King and then lost to Sauron. I can see that. I mean, I don't think he I don't think he could overthrow Sauron. I just I just don't think he could. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, let's uh but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Way ahead of ourselves now. Um, but anyway, yeah. As I said, I wanted to. I, w- I wanted to address this because I was. Uh, I was just this. This was uh, uh, timely for me because this passage was just on my mind again. Um, okay. Second one, just a, a quick observation uh, from Lincoln, which I thought was a great observation. Uh, he says, for some reason, I always found it deeply heartwarming the way the underhills of Bree are described taking Frodo into their hearts as a long lost cousin. Uh, it's not just a mistaken recognition of distant relatedness. It's an instant welcoming and embracing based solely on this supposed distant kinship. It says a lot about the attitude and values of the Shire hobbits in only a short sentence and all of it to their credit. I agree. I think it's a wonderful little touch um uh lincoln exactly as you say it's not only that they assume they must be related right but how they respond upon finding that they're related there's no uh you know it's like they just need an excuse right and and it can be a kind of a thin excuse right but given even a thin excuse they're ready to uh to to take him to his heart as a long-lost cousin right um and i i agree i think that that is that really shows us something um and it's interesting to me especially because it's um a little, potentially anyway, a little bit different than what we see in the Shire, right? Remember the, have the pattern in the Shire is for people in one part of the Shire to be suspicious of anybody who, you know, to, to believe, assume, largely assume, because uh, it's often without much data, um, that people who live, you know, more than 20 miles away are weird, Right. Uh, And uh, and they're suspicious and dubious of people who live far away. So here are the Bree Underhills. Right. Finding that there's this underhill from the Shire. They don't know anything about him. Right. They they, that's way farther away than Buckland is from uh, from Bag End. And yet, you know, from Hobbiton. And yet, instead of being like, oh, you're one of those weird Underhills, they immediately they immediately embrace him. Um and I think that that's cool. I, that, it does suggest something really interesting to me, and I, it makes me wonder: are the are the Bree hobbits in fact more welcoming than the Shire hobbits? Right, and I think they might be. Um, you know, so so uh, so I don't know. I mean, now it is. Uh, 
it is true that members of families couldn't can be spread out. So, you know, maybe you could say, well, a Shire Hobbit would probably not think a, a member of, the, you know, a long lost member of their own family was was queer just because they lived uh, far away. Um, maybe, maybe. But I don't know. I mean, uh, again, that might be true of uh, uh, of. Hobbits that are already kind of countercultural in this way, like the Tooks and the Brandy Bucks, right? But, um, you know, I don't know. It, even the just again thinking about Chapter One, the invitations to Bilbo, uh, to Bilbo's party, um, the fact that he's inviting people from all over the Shire and some even from outside the borders, uh, is treated as an oddity, right? And that's a it's a weirdness. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so Kyle, I agree. Bree as a whole does seem to, uh, be more open to outsiders, um, in that way. So it would make sense that the hobbits of Bree are more open to that as well. I agree. And JJ, you're right that, um, Sam trusts his cousin up in the, up in the, the North Farthing, right? Yes. Now they're very close family, right? So we're not talking about like somebody from a distant branch of the family who's from the North Farthing. You're talking about his cousin, right? Um, and, uh, I mean, even his brothers don't live at home. You know, Sam is the youngest son, not the only son, and not the oldest son of Hamfast Gamgee. He's the youngest son. He's the one who lives home with Dad, right? That's why he's, it's his responsibility to take care of Dad, not because he's the oldest son and the heir of his father, but because he's the youngest one who got left behind with Dad while the others kind of went out to do their thing. Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah, I, 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 it's... I think it's clearly different. Uh, Sam knows, you know, his close family and doesn't doesn't think they're strange just because they live up in the North Farthing. But if there were like a, a new branch of the Gamgee family that was discovered, right, and you learn that they're some very remote, distant relation of yours, but they're from, you know, the the North Farthing or something... Would he be dubious of them? You know, would he trust them instantly and immediately? Would he take them to his heart in the same way? Maybe. I'm not sure. We don't have too much evidence about that, but the evidence that we do have seems to be against it, that that I think it might be uh, fair to say that the Bree Hobbits are more welcoming. Um, But, um, yeah, and Matt was just asking about the same thing, too. Um, And yet, Tony, I agree, the whole living in a mixed species town at a crossroads, right, does suggest that there's sort of that tendency to be really parochial, right, to be um, to consider anybody who lives more than more than 20 miles away, you know, strange is 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 likely to be more common in the Shire, I think, than in Bree. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. OK. All right. So good observations. Let's get to the song. OK. Are we ready? So. Uh, I just wanted to. We we looked at this slide briefly last time, but uh, I just wanted to because you know we need the lead in again. So I wanted to read this, and it's been forever. Okay, everyone in the room was now looking at him. A song shouted one of the hobbits. A song, a song shouted all the others. Come on now, master, sing us something that we haven't heard before. For a moment, Frodo stood gaping. Then, in desperation, he began a ridiculous song that Bilbo had been rather fond of, and indeed rather proud of, for he had made up the words himself. It was about an inn, and that is probably why it came into Frodo's mind just then. Here it is in full. Only a few words of it are now, as a rule, remembered. Um, By the way, 
that last line is really interesting, right? I mean, it's that's a really fun line, and I've always loved that line. Um, but notice for a second who's speaking there, right? This is a really interesting moment because here we have the modern narrator speaking to us in a way that we have rarely gotten since chapter one, right? Um, exactly, Aerocab. This is the same person who mentions express trains, right? This is the modern 20th century narrator, um, who, you know, translator of the text who is compiling and translating the, the documents, right, that have come into his possession. Um, and there are very few places where we can point very clearly uh, to that voice, right? That voice was fairly common in The Hobbit, right? Remember all those times in The Hobbit when uh, the narrator addresses the reader, right? Um, you know, saying things uh, like in the riddle game, right? Saying things like, I expect that you, you know, know the answer or can guess it is as, as, as easy as blinking, right? Remember that? You know, so, but of course you, you know, don't have being eaten to trouble your thinking and uh, all that stuff. Um, th- so that kind of tactic where the narrator is speaking directly to the reader, uh, we don't see that even much in chapter one. Um, and we've not gotten much. I just, I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to, 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 one of the reasons I wanted to draw attention to that last sentence. Sometimes when you hear people talk about this, people will exaggerate this a little bit. That is to say that this narrator, the voice of this narrator vanishes after like chapter one, or at least after chapter three. Um, I don't think so. I, I clearly not right here he is again, um, and it's a good reminder that we do have several layers to kind of think through. There are going to be times when we're going to see uh, the storyteller, like the Hobbit narrator, um, Frodo, Sam, a later writer, maybe Findegill, King's writer, right? But somebody from the from the cultural context of the text, but clearly writing after the fact, right? We'll get some of that in some places. Um, but we still also have, on top of that, this additional layer. We have to remember that all this stuff is being mediated to us by a modern translator, by a modern narrator. Um, and occasionally we will see a recollection of that, a, 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 a direct... Um, uh, reminder of that modern narrator's existence. Um, and, uh, and yeah, Matt, I agree. The tone does sound very much like the tone. Uh, that's, that's exactly the point that I wanted to make. It isn't only the fact that by saying things like now, only a few words of it are now as a rule remembered now being the modern era, not the time of the story or even in the generations afterwards, but in the modern world in the 19th or 20th century, wherever the narrator is actually located 20th century, I'd assume. Um, I, that's the now clearly that he's referring to. But I agree as Matt's saying, it's not just that fact. It's not just the mere fact that it's the modern narrator speaking. It is also the tone, right? This is fun. 
Um, and it's fun in the same way that those passages in chapter one are fun. Um, I, I do love as a rule, Tom, I agree. Uh, and the tone there is very similar to the sort of the fun way of speaking that the narrator uh, so often has in chapter one, right? Um, the only a few words of it are now, as a rule, remembered is a very similar kind of tone uh, to, um, you know, the wonderful sentence in chapter one um, about uh, about apparently perpetual youth as well as reputedly inexhaustible wealth, right? Uh, the, the um, you know, those, those, that sort of, or the sentence about um, uh, people coming by arrangement to uh, remove the guests who had inadvertently remained behind, right? You know, there see, many places where uh, the narrator is having fun, but speaking in that kind of uh, sort of a dry humor voice, um, uh, which I uh, which I really like. Um, now, Mad Violinist, see, I'm a little less clear. Um, the Mad Violinist asks, do we think that this narrator is also speaking during the description of Bree at the beginning of this chapter? That, I think, is less clear. Um, that could very easily be, like, what I would call the Hobbit narrators, um, that is, the authors of the text. Um, if we think about the if we simplify it, we have to be careful because it's not necessarily, this, this is a simplification, right? But if we simplify it into thinking of three levels of the text, right? First being the level of the characters themselves, right? The, the, the level of the immediate action of the story. The second being the level of the authors of the text, Frodo, Sam, the authors of the text and their, and their editors, right? And then above that, the third level, being the modern narrator who has discovered these texts and is translating them and presenting them to us, the modern readers, right? Um, as I say, it's a simplification because we have extra layers in the middle, right? Not just the hobbits who wrote the text, but like Findegil, King's writer of Gondor, who then redacted the text afterwards and everything. So, but for simplicity's sake, we can think about those, um, those, those, those three layers, um, and it's often difficult to prove. But the Brie introduction sounds to me like the second layer, not the third, right? It sounds like it's it's it would be the intermediate, the author, um, or or the I shouldn't call it the author. We should call Tolkien the author, the writer of the text. Um, if we call these the characters, the writers, the translator, uh, and then we think about Tolkien as author behind the whole thing, maybe if I can try attempt to be consistent with that terminology it would be helpful um yeah yeah now see but tony i have a hard enough time being able to feel very confident that we can distinguish between level two and level three right between the writers and the uh and the translator to be able to try to guess whether we're hearing the writers or the editors or like what level of editors within that you know second layer as i was describing it we're getting um it would, uh, it would be, it would be challenging, right? Um, where would I place the Buckland introduction on that second layer as well, right? Um, this is the kind of fun game to play. This is the kind of fun game that Tolkien 
practically invites us to play with his note on the Shire records at the beginning of the, you know, in the prologue, right? Um, where he's, you know, telling us about the different history of the texts that went into making up this book. Um, and of course, it's exactly the kind of game that scholars so often play, especially with old manuscripts and texts and things, right? The different editorial layers that kind of underlie it. And, and uh, you know, you can, you can start making exactly the kind of argument, Mad Violinist, that you were just making, like that, you know, the Buckland description and the Bree descriptions are stylistically similar, right? So then you start thinking, okay, there's this one narrator or editorial level who's really interested in these kinds of descriptions, right? And then you, you know, you can, uh, uh, you know, so so if you sort of theorize, okay, the the um, like the Gondorian scribe, maybe the Gondorian scribe was really interested in these kinds of uh, in these kinds of details, right? Uh, so every time, but you know, I, we can't really be confident. And and I would also say, by the way, that when I find this kind of thing being done, like to medieval texts and things, I find it's usually. Well, I usually find that those arguments, they sound to me oversimplified, right? Um, they, they tend to want to, to sort of make, um, to draw what seem to me simplistic conclusions, but I mean, to, to, to use genuine textual evidence, but to, to, from that textual evidence, draw what strikes me as, as fairly simplistic um, uh, textual conclusions. Um, anyway, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> both Eric Hebb and Matt De, uh, DeForest were just, uh, thinking about what would happen if we run these different passages through the, uh, through the Lexos program, Mike Drought's Lexos program, uh, which studies exactly this kind of thing, looking at recurrent patterns of, uh, of, of language usage and things and see if we can, you know, we could find evidence for different layers of the text. Um, yeah, it would be interesting to do that. And I mean, it's, it's, it, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I, I would be, I too would be interested to see what we would find if we did that. It's a really fascinating tool. Um, yeah, Mike. See, exactly. Mike is saying you, know, you start from a conclusion and then find the evidence to match. That's exactly what I have often felt was happening with uh, many of those kinds of situations. Um, but anyhow, yeah. So I don't want to. To me, trying to get too, uh, trying to get too granular in identifying the narrative level seems to me not very useful but those distinctions of the of the of the three levels right modern translator contemporary writer slash editor uh characters within the text right those three levels i think are generally uh uh distinguishable um and important to distinguish because they they're they're each one of those three groupings are operating from a totally different framework so one thing that i just want to do here is to point out the modern translator is peeking through here he's not gone um and having reminded us of his presence right um we should be alert for other um moments uh when he peeks through again um yeah, we may, well, 
I'm sure come back to this at different times. Um, but yeah, my over my my very quick observation, the uh, the demise of the narrators of the the narrative voice from chapter one is has been exaggerated. Right, he's definitely not dead. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Okay. All right. Let's uh. Let's keep going. Let's talk about the song. A song, a song. Okay. Um, I talked about the title. This is the, the title I put here is the original title uh, that this poem was published under when Tolkien published it in the 1920s. A nursery rhyme undone and its scandalous secret unlocked. Um, uh, I think that's just wonderful. But I'm going to I'm going to play it now. So if I did this, if I set this up properly, you will be able to hear this on Twitch. And you should be able to hear it in Discord too. If I set if I set this up properly. There is an inn, a merry old inn, beneath an old grey hill. And there they brew a beer so brown that the man in the moon himself came down one night to drink his fill. The ostler has a tip to catch that plays a five-string fiddle And up and down he runs his bone A squeaking high, now purring low, now sawing in the middle The landlord keeps a little dog that is mighty fond of jokes When there's good cheer among the guests He cucks an ear at all the jests and laughs until he chokes They also keep a horned cow as proud as any queen But music turns her head like ale And makes her wave her tufted tail and dance upon the green and oh, the rows of silver dishes and the store of silver spoons. For Sunday there's a special pair, and these they polish up with care on Saturday afternoons. The man in the moon was drinking deep, and the cat began to wail. A dish and a spoon on the table danced, the cow in the garden madly pranced, and the little boy chased his tail. The man in the moon took another mug, then rolled beneath his chair. And there he dozed and dreamed of ale, till in the sky the stars were pale, and dawn was in the air. Then the ostler said to his tipsy cast the white horses of the moon. They neigh and chop their silver bits, but their master's ban and drowned his wits, and the sun will be rising soon. So the cat on his fiddle played hey diddle diddle, a jig that would wake the dead. He squeaked and sawed and quickened the tune, while the landlord shook the man in the moon. It's after three, he said. They rolled the man slowly up the hill and bundled him into the moon, while his horses galloped up and rear, and the cow came capering like a deer, and a dish ran up with a spoon. Now quicker the fiddle went deedle-dum-deedle, the dog began to roar. The cow and the horses stood on their heads, the guests all bounded from their beds and danced upon the floor. With a pig and a pong, the fiddle strings broke, the cow jumped over the moon. And the little dog laughed to see such fun, and the Saturday dish went off at a run with the silver Sunday spoon. The round moon rolled behind the hill as the sun raised up her head. She hardly believed her fiery eyes, for though it was day to her surprise, they all went back to bed. All right. Excellent. I want to make sure it doesn't move on to something else. Okay, cool. Very good. Okay, so I hope that you could hear that reasonably well. Um, first, let's... Uh, uh, so I, 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 I love to be able to 
get it with music, right? Uh, and to hear it sung as it as it as it should be sung. Um, okay. First, what do you notice about the shape of this song? Right, we 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 need to, we should look at the structure right even before we start thinking about the content here. Let's look at each stanza. It's obviously in stanzas, right? And each stanza is pretty much the same. There are some variations, local variations in rhythm of particular lines and things, um, but in general, it's very regular, right? What's the shape? What's the structure? It's a really uh, uh, simple but but cool shape, right? Um, so listen to the listen to the rhythm. Tell me what you notice about the rhythm and rhyme scheme. There is an inn, a merry old inn, beneath an old gray hill, and there they brew a beer so brown that the man in the moon himself came down one night to drink his fill. What do you hear? What meter is it in? Okay, yes, it's 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 iambic, right? It's definitely iambic, though that's irregular, right? In, in some places, uh, it, he plays with that, right? There is an in a merry old inn, right? A merry old inn uh, is an, a, a, a great example of the kind of variation that we get locally within lines, right? Um, so yeah, it's mostly an iambic tetrameter, yes. Four main beats in the line, right? There is an inn, a merry old inn, beneath an old gray hill. Oops, only three there. And there they brew a beer so brown that the man in the moon himself came down one night to drink his fill. Four beats, three beats, four beats, four beats, three beats, right? Okay, so alternating between three and four? Oh, wait, except it's not. We get those two lines with four in a row, right, in the middle. So... What we get here, in fact, is uh, not exactly iambic tetrameter, right? Iambic tetrameter, one of the sort of famous things about iambic tetrameter is that it's really like regular and sing-songy, right? Um, uh, You know, sort of read enough regular iambic tetrameter aloud and you'll you'll start going like this without you being able to help it right um th- this has a very different rhythm than just a regular iambic tetrameter um notice if you just read skip the middle line right if you skip the middle line how does it sound there is an inn a merry old inn beneath an old gray hill that the man in the moon himself came down one night to drink his fill, right? Those sound like two seven-beat lines, which rhyme at the end, right? Um, the four-three-four-three, four, three, tetrameter, trimeter, pairing—that's really common uh, in Tolkien's poetry. Tolkien loves heptameter lines, right? He loves seven beats in a line, or if he doesn't do it in a single line, he'll do it like this. He'll do four, three, alternating, four, three, alternating. Um, um, so, and it gives, and often we'll see him link them with rhyme like this, as if it were two, instead of four lines, right, of, you know, four, three, four, three, it's like two lines of seven, seven, right, that rhyme, that, that are a rhyming couplet, Hill and Phil. Um, that's very common for Tolkien. 
but it's not just that either, right? Um, uh, there, um, there's that extra line in the middle, right? The one that I skipped when I was just reading through that extra tetrameter line, which is not paired with a trimeter line. So we break the pattern of seven, um, but instead it's tied together, right? Um, by internal rhyme with the first half of the end. So we've got the, the, the first two lines and the last two lines, which are joined with rhyme, right? But then you've got lines three and four, which are joined by rhyme, which has the effect of sounding like an internal rhyme, right? And there they brew a beer so brown that the man in the moon himself came down one night to drink his fill. Um, it sounds like internal rhyme because, again, came down doesn't sound, when you're just listening to it, it doesn't even sound like the end of the line, right? There is an inn, a merry old inn, beneath an old gray hill. And there they brew a beer so brown that the man in the moon himself came down one night to drink his fill. It sounds like two long lines with a short line in the middle, but with the internal rhyme on that on that short line. So I, I really like how they uh, how the the different parts of the stanza all kind of hold together. The one thing that sort of stands out, and Tony, you were pointing this out earlier. There's no rhyme for the first line, right? Um, and what's the effect of that? The effect of that is to 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 again make it sound like that seven beat line. It doesn't sound like the end of a line, right? Because the 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 rhyming bit is the part that comes at the end, the end of the trimeter line, line two. Line one doesn't have any rhyming pair at all. Um, so the the way that we get this sort of the the the, the longer lines uh, and then that that sort of quick repetition uh, in the middle with the internal rhyme. And up and down he runs his bow, now squeaking high, now purring low, now sawing in the middle. Right? When there's good cheer among the guests, he cocks an ear at all the jests and laughs, and laughs until he chokes. Right? That, that sort of shorter line, shorter tetrameter line um, uh, with the internal rhyme in the middle of the stanza. Um, yeah, I I love the 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 thoughts that you guys are having. Tony is uh, is saying you could uh, musically you could play it play this as five four time and it would line up. That would be interesting. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it uh, it's it's it's. I mean, the way that I the way that I think about it. Um, see, again, yeah, I'm not sure about the five four thing too. If that would line up properly, if it would, if it would work out, um, exactly. Um, but it's the effect for me is this combination of regularity and irregularity, right? On the one hand, it's 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 the stanza structures are all tied together, and stanza structures. I love stanza. I love rhyme structures of 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 stanzas. Uh, they're really fun to play with. And poets can use those uh, to create some really fun effects within stanzas. Um, you know, we see this. In, you know, there are a lot of really great. There's a lot of really great stanzaic poetry written, especially uh, earlier on, like Chaucer's Rhyme Royal stanza. Um, you know, like uh, 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 Spencer's uh, Fairy Queen stanza. Um, you know, where you can establish what. Uh, looks like a simple pattern becomes a more complicated pattern and so enables you to um uh enables you to kind of tie one part of the stanza with another part of the stanza right you'll have the um 
uh, so again, like like you know, here again, we have this what 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 has the effect of a kind of uh, kind of expansion, right? Of the of the second, you know, again, it's like two rhyming two long rhyming lines, except we're drawing out the second one, right? Um, regular but kind of irregular, right? It's the fact that it's a five line stanza um, makes it sort of by necessity a little bit irregular, right? Because it, it's not just quatrains. It's not just alternating like the rhyme scheme A, B, A, B or something like that. Um, uh, it's not going to have that same kind of regular sort of uh, regular sort of pattern, um, if you see what I mean by that. Um, anyway, so there's, 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 there's lots to think about here. Again, it's, it's not super complex, right? Um, but it's really interesting to think about that uh, uh, that that stanza structure. And to me, one of the primary effects of that is that uh, it really invites me to think about the beginning and the end of the stanzas together, right? That that line of that that rhyme of line two and the rhyme of of line five um, necessarily kind of connect the opening and concluding concepts of the stanza. And then we have as a as a second sort of internal movement within each stanza that that internal rhyme in the middle, right? Lines three and four, um, and so those are kind of two. That that's the general shape of the of the of the poem, right? Let's look look at another um, uh, random uh, stanza. Right, uh, and oh, the rows of silver dishes and the store of silver spoons. For Sunday there's a special pair, and these they polish up with care on Saturday afternoons. Right, uh, so we have first the the concept of we begin the stanza by introducing the dishes and spoons. Right, and then we end the stanza. Uh, by talking about how they're polished on Saturday afternoons. Right, so we get the Saturday and Sunday thing. Um, but in the middle, we sort of dilate on the, 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 the one idea of the special pair of dishes on Sunday. And these they polish up with care on Saturday afternoons. So uh, we come back to the Saturday afternoons at the end. But we have in the middle, we have like the specialness of Sunday, right? We're going to pause for a second and look at the Sunday dishes, right? What makes the Sunday dishes special, right? Um, uh, yeah, and... Eric Hebb, you're right. The enjambment of these lines, again, making them feel like long lines rather than short lines, right? Um, for Sunday, there's a special pair, and these they polish up with care on Saturday afternoons. That whole thing is a sentence, right? Those last three lines are all one sentence. But you'll notice there's stronger enjambment between lines four and five, right? You pause at the end of line three. You don't stop, but you pause. For Sunday, there's a special pair, and these they polish up with care on Saturday afternoons. You don't pause at all between lines four and five. It's like it's one long line. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Brick tells there's no explanation as to why Sunday would be a special day in a pre-Christian world. There's no explanation of that. But that mere fact, right? The mere fact that the song is kind of not taking for that for granted. Like it's within a Christian context, you wouldn't have to explain that there's a special pair of dishes for Sunday, right? You just any more than the original nursery rhyme does, right? It, uh, uh, the, the silver Sunday spoon, right? It just mentions the silver Sunday spoon and you're supposed to know about that, right? Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, it, it's it's uh, um, so it tells us right 
For Sunday, there's a special pair, and these they polish up with care on Saturday afternoons. Why? We don't know, right? But it is emphasized that that, that, that should happen. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, exactly, Tom, and uh, Fourth Dauntless was also pointing this out, too. The Saturday-Sunday thing is an artifact of translation, right? Um, it's not actually Saturday and Sunday are not the actual uh, names uh, in the original, uh, you know, Westron. That's not what they were saying, right? But the translator has rendered it into Saturday and Sunday so that we'll understand, right? So that it, it fits. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay, what else was I thinking? Um, let's think more about the story now. Having thought some about the shape and the sound, um, what is this song about, ultimately? What's the... What is this song? What are we getting here? Um... Notice where we begin. There is an inn, a merry old inn, beneath an old gray hill. And there they brew a beer so brown that the man in the moon himself came down one night to drink his fill. Um, notice the moment when the song... Oops. <laughs> Sorry, I went AFK. Um, notice the moment when the song shifts on us, right? When it takes a, a turn for the unexpected, right? It sounds totally normal, right? There is an inn, a merry old inn beneath an old gray hill, okay, right? Particularly appropriate, right? As he's actually singing within an, Ill, un, within an inn underneath a hill, right? And there they brew a beer so brown. Okay, as, you know they grew they brew good beer in this inn. Again, sounds like a completely you know fun but totally normal thing, right? Um. Uh, and then there's a sudden turn. Hang on a second. Caution, caution. Um. Don't be thinking about Tillian. And Arian. Yet, anyway, um, I'm cautioning about that. I mean, it's like a little bit relevant, of course, but I just be cautious about it. Um, this is a very um, uh, uh, imperfectly naturalized song. Within the mythology of the Silmarillion. Um, uh, yeah, we do. We are getting, uh, Marianne, as you say, a folktale or fantastic story. Um, but again, see, the thing I want to emphasize is it doesn't start off strange, right? We're given a very normal setting until the man in the moon comes down himself. Right. Okay. So the man in the moon himself has come down one night to drink his fill. Now we know this is fantastical 
in some way, right? This is a this is now a marvelous story. It wasn't a marvelous story from the very beginning, right? But the man in the moon comes down and it becomes marvelous. And what do we immediately see? The ostler has a tipsy cat that plays a five-stringed fiddle. And up and down he runs his bow, now squeaking high, now purring low, now sawing in the middle. The landlord keeps a little dog that is mighty fond of jokes. When there's good cheer among the guests, he cocks an ear at all the jests and laughs until he chokes. Okay. So, the ostler's cat plays the fiddle. And the landlord's dog uh, laughs at the jokes of his guests. Right? Okay, so having gotten fantastical with the man in the moon, we're staying fantastical, right? Um, we find this is, so this is not a, this is not a, a normal in at all. This is operating. This whole thing is operating in a, as several of you are suggesting in a, in a fairy world, right? This is a world with like different rules that we have. Um, but, uh, okay. So we see that, but what is the spirit of that world? Do you see what I mean by that? It's different. It's weird. It's marvelous, right? But what, what's the flavor of marvelous, right? The ostler's cat being able to play the fiddle and the landlord's dog cocking an ear at all the jests when there's good cheer among the guests and laughing until he chokes is not... Like, neither one of those marvels is random, Right? Um, you know, this is not, this is not the, like the effects of the infinite improbability drive, right? This is, uh, um, this fits the theme, right? Jollity, Aerocab, absolutely. And JJ, yeah, inns are fun places. Um, this is marvelous. It's humorous and it's marvelous. Um, but it's marvelous within a theme, right? And the theme is, this is like the inn of fairy. This is the, this is like the Uber pub, right? Um, and, uh, at this pub, like this pub is such a lovely pub, right? This is such a wonderful place that, uh, even the cat, even the ostler's cat play is, you know, takes part in the entertainment, right? And there's so much laughter and so much fun among the guests that even the landlord's dog participates directly in the jollity, right? The, 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 the humor, the amusement of the guests is so great that it's perceptible even to the dog, right? So this seems to be, it's the inn of lost play. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, um, and yes, Alex, starting in that first stanza, right? They brew their own beer. Most inns brew their own beer, apparently, right? Butterbur brews his own beer. Um, uh, and we can tell that the inns brew their own beer in the Shire, too, as you can tell, for instance, by the particularly high reputation of the inn at the Golden Perch, right? Um, in stock. But anyway, so um, what we're seeing is like all of these things that good inns are known for, right? And we're seeing all of these things being exaggerated. How much... How jolly is the company at this inn? So jolly that even the dog joins in, right? What's the quality of entertainment 
at this inn, so high that even the ostler's cat plays the fiddle, right? Um, and how good is the beer? So good that the man in the moon himself descends from the heavens in order to partake of the beer himself, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, so we can we can see the theme, right? It's marvelous, but it's marvelous within the tavern genre, right? Um, and that's uh, so that's 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 interesting. That's our first context. Okay, so let's keep going. They also keep a horned cow as proud as any queen, but music turns her head like ale and makes her wave her tufted tail and dance upon the green. And oh, the rows of silver dishes in the store of silver spoons. For Sunday, there's a special pair, and these they polish up with care on Saturday afternoons. The man in the moon was drinking deep, and the cat began to wail. A dish and a spoon on the table danced. The cow in the garden madly pranced, and the little dog chased his tail. Okay. Um, the cow is particularly proud. J.J., I also have never noted cows to be remarkable for their pride uh but i guess i mean i have known only a few cows relatively well so it's possible that the ones i knew were particularly humble i it's possible i'm not really sure um but um uh Oh, yes, I absolutely do, Fort Thoughtless, assume that the cat is wailing on the fiddle and not wailing in the regular cat wailing way. I think it's a play on the regular cat wailing, right? Now, like, hearing a cat wail is usually not a good thing. Um, but in this case, in this inn, right, when the cat's wailing, he's, it's, he's, uh, it's, uh, he's really getting down on the fiddle, right? Um, but anyway, okay, so the, the cow is proud... But she gets drunk on music, right? And she dances upon the green. And again, how how enchanting is the good cheer at this inn, right? It has this effect even on the local livestock, right? Uh, the even the, the the proud local cow is uh, 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 is enchanted, right? And uh, and dances upon the green. Um, and oh, and oh, the rows of... I love the O oh in that stanza, right? Just exclaiming, oh man, I didn't even talk about their crockery, right? Can you even believe... Can you even guess at an inn like this, right? At like the Uber Inn, uh, the, the, the... Man, imagine the rows of silver dishes in the store of silver spoons, right? And even among those, even among the silver dishes that they have, because they don't just have crockery like Butterbur has, they have silver stuff, Right. And in their silver, uh, there's even a special pair that's like even more special than the rest of the silver stuff. Right. Um, and now, having established this marvelous super inn, we get to the action of the day in question, because what we're going to be hearing about. Right. What the store, what the this has all just been setting the scene. Right. Um, and the scene is being set for this one particular night where things got really crazy. So what we're getting is the most extraordinary night in the most extraordinary inn in the world, right? We're getting sort of marvels uh, heaped upon marvels here. Um, 
The man in the moon was drinking deep, and the cat began to wail. A dish and a spoon on the table danced. The cow in the garden madly pranced, and the little dog chased his tail. The little dog, who enjoys the good cheer among the guests, is, like, going crazy, spinning in circles, because he's, so, uh, uh, he's so happy. And there's the cat wailing away on his fiddle. Uh, and the dish and the spoon are dancing. It's not just the cow. Right. The jollity of the room and the music and the excellence of the music is not only affecting the livestock, it's even affecting the flatware. Uh, So there we go. That's just how exceptional this one night was. Right. Um, And yes, Mungley Mungley says because he's a dog. Right. Absolutely. Notice how he's playing on both normal cat behavior and normal dog behavior. Right. But having established the marvelous their roles, the cat and the dog's roles in the uh, in the this marvelous context at the super inn, right? Um, it, he takes these activities, which by themselves would just sound like normal cat and dog activities, right? The cat's wailing and the dog's running in circles, right? Like cats do, like dogs do, um, but um, uh, but yet within the marvelous context, we see far from coming down to normal behavior, it's taking it up another notch to super marvelous behavior, right? Um, The man in the moon took another mug and then rolled beneath his chair. And there he dozed and dreamed of ale till in the sky, the stars were pale and dawn was in the air. So again, now, so we had the, the music, the jollity, the, uh, the festiveness of the evening. So extraordinary. And apparently the potency of the beer also, is at uh, is at uh, its peak levels here this evening as the man in the moon passes out beneath his chair. So this is the again the story of that one extraordinary evening, uh, in which um, uh, we get the man in the moon rolling beneath his chair till dawn is about to happen, and here's the moon still at the pub. Then the ostler said to his tipsy cat, "The white horses of the moon, they neigh and champ their silver bits, but in but their master's been and drowned his wits, and the sun'll be rising soon." Steve, you did an awesome job with this stanza. I think this is the hardest stanza in the song to sing. The second line, or second half of that line, right? That trimeter line is really tricky, right? This is, I think, the most remarkable. Um, rhythmic variation of any line in the poem. Then the ostler said to his tipsy cat, the white horses of the moon. The white horses of the moon. Um, it doesn't even sound iambic, that line, right? It's not just, we're adding a little triplet, right? Um, there is an in, a merry old in, right? That's not just, let's put a merry old in instead of just a regular iambic uh, pattern. Yeah, it, Steve, it really is a mouthful. Right? Again, I, was, I, was, I was listening for that stanza and I was really impressed with how you pulled that off because um, it's very difficult. Then the ostler said to his tipsy cat, the white horses of the moon, they neigh and champ their silver bits, but their master's been and drowned his wits, and the sun will be rising soon. It gets back to regular. By the way, I didn't mention that. There are very few rhythmic variations within lines three and four. Lines three and four are almost always very regular iams. He squeaked and sawed and quickened the tune while the landlord shook the man in the moon. We do get the quicken the tune to get a little triplet feel there in the end. Um, anyway, uh the ostlers, I, I, I think that the it, it would be my argument that the awkwardness of that first line um, is deliberate, 
it's supposed to be a little bit jarring, right? The ostler is kind of being the buzzkill here, right? Everybody is having the best night ever at the best inn ever, right? So we have Marvelous within the Marvelous, and then here's the ostler kind of bringing people back to reality, and he's like, um, people, we have to reestablish normality, right? This, the moon has got to set, because the sun's coming up, so you know, the, the white horses of the moon are neighing and champing in their silver bits, right? Um, he's the one who is um, uh, trying to bring things back into the normal pattern, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so the cat on his fiddle played hey diddle diddle, a jig that would wake the dead. He squeaked and sawed and quickened the tune while the landlord shook the man in the moon. It's after three, he said. Um, the cat on his fiddle played hey diddle diddle. That's a very remarkable line. What do you notice about that line? That's pretty special. We've not heard anything like this. Especially not in line one, Right. Yeah, exactly, JJ and Alex. The internal rhyme, right? The thing that has made line one stand out all the way through the song to this point is it doesn't rhyme with anything, right? It's the springboard to line two, right? Which is going to rhyme ultimately with line five. Um, but it's... Um, um, it's But, but we, we, we get internal rhyme here. So the cat on his fiddle played hey diddle diddle. Um... And yes, Eric, we sort of break into Anapests. This this triplet feel that's been running through, right? Um, there is an in a merry old in, ba 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 ba. Um, you know that's um, uh, very. Um, sorry, I'm messing with my phone here. Um, that's a very uh, 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 prominent pattern throughout the poem, but. Um, we finally get, um, we finally get the, um, <laughs> sorry, Twitter people complaining about me trying to mess with my phone while I'm broadcasting. Um, anyway, sorry. Um, it doesn't exactly fall into regular anapests here, but that triplet feel that's been kind of lurking all the way through the poem comes out very strongly in this stanza, right? This is the big one. So the cat and the fiddle played hey diddle diddle, a jig that would wake the dead. When we return to I am's in the second line, a jig that would wake the dead, wake the dead is back to the normal iambic pattern. And boy, doesn't that sound remarkable, right? Don't you land on wake the dead? really heavily because we're in anapests all the way through. So the cat and the fiddle played hey diddle diddle, a jig that would wake the dead. Um, I love how that uh, how how that ends up uh, coming through. But uh, notice how, you know, we get the increased frenzied pace of things, right? Because having established the marvelous in and then having added on top of that this specially marvelous night when everything was really already pretty amped up and pretty extra marvelous, now we're going to we're going to respond by cranking it up one more level, right? We're going to go even higher. Um, and, and the poem's rhythm responds to that and gets really frantic while the, uh, the, the cat is uh, playing Hey Diddle Diddle. And, of course, we get one of the jokes here, right? Um, 
which is hey diddle diddle is of course the uh the first line of the original nursery rhyme right um so uh i it's and and so at this point um remember the whole conceit behind the original poem right a nursery rhyme undone and its scandalous secret unlocked right uh, the whole point is it's going to tell us the story behind the nursery rhyme itself sounds like a nonsense rhyme, right? Hey, diddle, diddle, the cat and the fiddle, the cow jumped over the moon. Like what do any of those things have to do with each other? Right. The cat and the fiddle, are they connected with each other? Right. Doesn't even, you know, that doesn't, that line by itself doesn't even necessarily convey that the cat's playing the fiddle. It's just the cat. There's, we have cat, we have fiddle, Right. Um, we have the cow jumping over the moon. Why? How? In what context? We have no idea, right? Um, the little dog laughed to see such sport. You know, okay, right? But uh, we don't get, there's no story there, right? Um, the actual use of the of the words, of the phrase, hey, diddle, diddle here, right, is our queer signal. Now it comes, right? Having given you the background, now we get the action of the nursery rhyme. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Alex, you're right. Alex points out as fantastical as the animals are, the humans in this poem are all relatively dedicated to doing their jobs. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. They're all very responsible, which is of course, especially, uh, uh, fun, I suppose, when your job is like helping to, uh, create the, you know, the most super awesome inn in the world. Um, um, anyway, sorry, let's keep going. Where I was like, oh yeah, he squeaked and sawed and quickened the tune while the landlord shook the man in the moon. It's after three, he said. Um, I, those lines, as I said, normally lines three and four are very regular iambic tetrameter. Um, the shifts in this particular stanza are so cool though. He squeaked and sawed and quickened the tune. Doesn't that, rhythmically, doesn't that sound like a fiddle, right? He squeaked and sawed and quickened the tune while the landlord shook the man in the moon. It's after three, he said. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I love the way that Tolkien's rhythm in that stanza really evokes the sound that you... Can't you hear the fiddle when you hear those lines? It's uh, it's pretty cool. They rolled the man slowly up the hill and bundled him into the moon, while his horses galloped up in rear and the cow came capering like a deer and a dish ran up with the spoon. Um, so, the man in the moon is not the moon, right? He's the man in the moon. Um... And we meet the man in the moon in other contexts, two other contexts within Tolkien's world. See, yeah, Tillian, yes, technically, no, not really. Um, Roverandom, yes, Rick, Roverandom, that's the man in the moon we're talking about here, clearly. Um, the there's a companion piece. So he wrote two Man in the Moon poems in this period. One is this one, um, which was also went by the title of The Man in the Moon Stayed Up Too Late. Um, 
Uh, there's the other poem, the companion piece to this is The Man in the Moon Came Down Too Soon, um, which is about how the man in the moon is looking down from the moon, and he's he's kind of looking enviously. Like, things are all kind of pale and washed out on the moon, and he's like, I want vibrant colors, I want life, I want, I want to eat steak and drink wine and like, exciting bright colors and I want to experience I want to live a little experience the life of the world so I'm going to go down into the world and I'm going to I'm going to live it up some and but then he's going down the stairs and he trips and falls into the ocean and they fish him out and it's early in the morning and he doesn't get anything and he ends up uh like off in the corner of a of of a, a of an inn um kitchen uh, uh, eating bad porridge. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, no, Aragorn, it does not go well for the man in the moon in the man in the moon comes down too soon. It's kind of a sad poem, really. Uh, he just never gets what he, what he wants. But, uh, um, the point is he's a comical figure. I mean, the whole poem is kind of a joke at his expense. Um, now the man in the moon is less comical in Rover Random. He's, a uh, he's a magician. He's a wizard. Um, but um, it's it's um, the same genre, though, as the two Man in the Moon poems that Tolkien had written, uh, wrote at around, you know, in that same era of his life. Um, so is the Man in the Moon Tillian? Yeah, theoretically, like kind of. Um by dint of the fact that the poem has been included in the Lord of the Rings, which is definitely being connected with the Silmarillion tradition, logically, the man... And there is... A, and fortunately, within that mythology, there is a man in the moon, right? Tillian. Cool. So we can therefore have hobbits singing songs about the man in the moon without inconsistency, right? It works within the mythology. And it's easy to say that the hobbits, you know, like they, that the mere fact that they uh, understand that there's a man in the moon shows that they have some kind of cultural inheritance of, you know, the legends of Tillian and Aryan, uh, but they don't have any clear stories about it. And so they, you know, they tell these sort of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, mythologically degenerate stories of, of the man in the moon, uh, which have their origin in the reality of Tillian in the moon. But it's, um, you know, so like, yeah, you can, you can construct that, right? It works. It's fine. It's totally fine. But, but if you're picturing Tillian, when you're reading the man in the moon poem, I don't think that's quite right. If you see what I mean, do you see what I mean by the difference between that? It works. It can be made to work. You can write an explanation of why Bilbo and Frodo would be singing this kind of a song about the man in the moon, right? Even though there's no reason to think Tillian behaves like this, right? Um, so you can, um, um, again, you can, you, can, you can explain it. You can make it work. But to think that whichever level we're thinking of it on, whether we're thinking of it as like historically within Tolkien's own writings or whether we're thinking of it in terms of even the song as Frodo and Bilbo wrote it, I don't think that even within the frame of the story, 
Frodo and Bilbo are really thinking about Tilian when they're and and for those of you who don't know the Silmarillion, I shouldn't assume uh, there is a Maya who's driving the chariot of the moon, and it's a male Maya, and his name is Tilian. So there is literally a, a spirit who is like the chariot driver of the moon, and his name is Tilian, and everything. Um, so uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I I hear that. Um, and I know somebody else was mentioning this, I think, earlier on. After, you know, ages of unrequited love, Tillian may well have taken to drink. I get it. That You know, I'm not saying that doesn't make sense. Uh, I'm just saying, I think if we treat this, uh, this, this, if we try to take this song really seriously as like, and this is one of the legends of, didn't you wonder what Tillian was doing after? Well, here it is, right? This is one of a, one of those true myths of Tillian, Maya of the Moon. That's not how that's I, to to read it this way is that way that is would be I think a pretty serious misreading of the poem, um, yeah yeah um, and Matt you're you're absolutely right he's not driving a chariot or something right he's riding in a carriage which you because uh, you can't be bundled into a chariot no one was ever bundled into a chariot right or at least it'd be very hard to do so. Um, but uh, but yeah, you can get bundled into a carriage. In fact, this is exactly um, this is exactly like the um, the drunken people being bundled into chariots. The the upper class hobbits at the long expected party, right? Getting bundled, you know, chariots coming for the uh, uh, for the important folk, right? Um, and yet, JJ, you're right. He does not get carted away in a lunar wheelbarrow. So he is. But that just shows that he's, you know, upper class, right? Presumably, if this were one of the lesser celestial spirits, somebody would come with a celestial wheelbarrow and haul him away. Um, anyway, uh, so so they're rolling the man up the hill, up the hill to because that's where he parked the moon. Makes sense. Right, uh, uh, the inn is underneath a hill. So when the man in the moon descends uh, to drink his fill at the inn, he lands like Santa Claus, right, like Father Christmas, on the top of the hill, uh, and then and then comes down um, uh, because he's in his you know his flying thing, um, and uh, um, anyway, yeah. So. Um, so that's why they're having to roll him up the hill. They're rolling him because, I don't know, what is he fat? I think he must be fat. You think the man in the moon is fat? I think the man in the moon is fat. Um, and that's why they're, they're rolling him uh, up the hill and bundling him into the moon. Um, yeah, Alex, I mean, I certainly agree. There's no, based on the evidence of the song, there's every reason to think that the man in the moon is uh, probably not, you know, toned and cut. Right, based on his uh, life choices here. Um, uh, so uh, anyway, <laughs> Valori, fair enough. Valori thinks it would depend on the time of month as to how fat the man of the moon is. Maybe he does. Maybe he gets skinny every month and then gets fat again. I can totally believe that. Um, and yeah, Mike, it may well be that the man of the moon is too big to carry. Are these hobbits um, who are running this? Is this an entire Hobbit cast? Is the landlord, the ostler, are all of them um, Hobbits? Every reason to think so. I would think it's a Hobbit song, isn't it? So, yeah, I would think they would be Hobbits, which, 
Mike, I agree, would be another reason why they wouldn't be able to pick up and carry the man in the moon, even if he's not fat, which I think he probably is fat. Um, he he is he's too big, right? Um, okay, so his horses are galloping up in rear. Here's his horses taking it really seriously, but they're being accompanied. But here's the horses are doing their job, right? Um, so we have the humans and the horses, or the hobbits and the horses doing their jobs faithfully, um, while the other characters are are having a good time. So we have the 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 horses, but then the cow is um, uh, uh, sort of the counterpoint to the horses, right? If the, um, uh, oops, I just lost it again. By the way, since I keep defaulting to the uh, uh, logout screen because I keep getting lost in the song, um, brief observation of how awesome the new login screen is, right? Love the Minas Tirith background of uh, the uh, human login screen now, by the way. Today's update. Looking looking nice. Anyway, um, okay, so let's keep going. Now, um, and when the dish is running up with the spoon. So remember that, um, that exceptional evening, right? Uh, the things being super marvelous on top of super marvelous, uh, and then things getting turned up even higher when the, uh, the, the, the cat were reminded that's still happening, right? The dish and the spoon are running around, right? They're, uh, the, 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 the cow is capering like a deer. Um, super, and I do, I have known enough cows to know that a cow capering like a deer, pretty unlikely. Um, now, quicker the fiddle went deedle-dum-deedle, the dog began to roar. Um, I love the rhythm there. You hear that? I, I can't do that rhythm any other way. Now, quicker the fiddle went deedle-dum-diddle. Um, once again, we have that frantic uh, uh, fiddle motion, right? Now, quicker the fiddle went deedle-dum-deedle, the dog began to roar. The dog began to roar. That's normal iambic trimeter, right? Normal iambic pattern. But doesn't it sound plodding after that first line? Now, quicker the fiddle went deedle-dum-deedle, the dog began to roar. Um, you know, this sort of stompy line there of iams. The cow and the horses stood on their heads. The guests all bounded from their beds and danced upon the floor. Um, spontaneous dancing breaking out. There were some guests, apparently, who were not part of the festivities. They were actually sleeping because it's after 3 o'clock, presumably 3 o'clock a.m., and uh, and so there are lots of people who are actually sleeping in their rooms upstairs. The level of jollity in the inn has gotten so high that people are spontaneously leaping from their beds and dancing immediately. Right? They're not just being woken up and they're not complaining about it. They're just it's it is everything transformed to wild fun here. Right, the cow and the horses stood on their heads, and so the cow is like now affected. The horses, right? Even the horses are standing on their heads, not just the cow, but the horses also. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Eric Hebbets in time with the rolling of the moon, right? That is with the 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 party gets really rocking when we're when we're rolling the moon up up the hill. Right. It's not the party's not over. Uh, it's it's only still escalating. With a ping and a pong, the fiddle strings broke. The cow jumped over the moon and the little dog laughed to see such fun. And the Saturday dish went off at a run with the silver Sunday spoon. 
here we get the stanza which contains the majority of the original nursery rhyme, right? Um, but notice how uh, replacing the hey diddle diddle, the cat and the fiddle, the cow jumped over the moon, right? With a ping and a pong, the fiddle strings broke. This is the end of the story, right? This is not the beginning of the story. Um, and again, that's sort of the whole joke, right? Um, and Tony asks, is it possible the moon is affecting everyone with lunacy? Maybe. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, my resistance to that is lunacy, you know, in traditional stories, you know, was very different from this. But that's okay. <laughs> I mean, like, it's fine that it should be different. Um, but, um, yeah, and Cecile, you're absolutely right. The ping and a pong does uh, the wonderful onomatopoeia for the sound of, of a fiddle string breaking, right? It is exactly what it sounds like. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At Lincoln, yes, the Saturday dish running off with the Sunday spoon does sound like some kind of cross-racial elopement, right? It's like the Baron and Luthien of the flatware. Right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh and you're right, Mike, it's cross-class as well, right? Because it's not, it's not a Sunday spoon and a Sunday dish running off together. It's a Saturday dish running off with a Sunday spoon, right? Um, so, yeah, very much breaking the class boundary for Thoughtless. This is, the Saturday dish is marrying up, like you do in Tolkien, right? Especially if you're a guy. Um, this silver Sunday spoon is clearly the female figure, right? Because the dish is, the dish is marrying up. Um, it is a scandalous elopement, um, uh, Tony, but it's um, it's not just uh, it is the consummation, right? Is in this case, it's the the marital consummation of the festival that's happening here, right? Um, the tamest line in the entire stanza here is the little dog laughed to see such fun. It's clearly only there because that line's there in the original nursery rhyme, right? Um, to see such fun or to see such sport, I've heard the nurse, the nursery rhyme in, 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 in with both of those, with either of those, of those lines, either of those versions. Um, he uses fun so that he can rhyme it with run. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, that that line is pretty tame, right? But that's because it's from the original nursery rhyme. Um, so note how instead of just sort of taking the wild and crazy concepts that are just kind of thrown together in the original nursery rhyme, which is really just kind of a piece of nonsense poetry. Um, uh, not nonsense poetry in the Vogon poetry sense where it's using nonsense words, um, but nonsense poetry in the sense of it just kind of being random images and things that are fun but not explained, right? Um, and so giving the explanation makes it even more fun. But, but of course, the explanation is that this is yeah, the way that we build to this crescendo and the, the sort of entertaining elopement uh, of the Saturday. That is, I say it's entertaining. 
I'm assuming I'm assuming that the elopement between the Saturday dish and the Sunday spoon is consensual, right? Because I just want to think that. We're not told that explicitly. We're told that the dish ran off with the silver Sunday spoon. Um, I'm hoping that the Saturday dish didn't do a more sinister, you know, Lobelia Sackville Baggins on the Sunday spoon there. Um, And we do have some precedent of spoons just being walked off with, right? Um, But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I, I, I'm assuming, I'm totally assuming that it's a consensual elopement between the Saturday dish and the Sunday spoon. And the, my primary reason for thinking that is that, uh, the, 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 they were dancing previously, right? So I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, totally consensual. Absolutely. Um, the round moon rolled behind the hill as the sun raised up her head. Now, this does not prove that the man in the moon was fat. It's the moon that's round. That is, it's the carriage of the moon. Is He's in a round carriage because the carriage is itself the moon. It rolls behind the hill as the sun raised up her head. She hardly believed her fiery eyes, for though it was day, to her surprise, they all went back to bed. <laughs> Fort Thoughtless says, Tolkien's continuing to get the faces of the moon correct, even when the moon is drunk. Yes, exactly. Um, uh yeah, so the, um, and I love how all the moon has to do is set, right? The problem is not that the moon doesn't have to get back up in the sky. It just has to go down. It's been on the hilltop. So it's not that the the moon has left its course. It's just tarrying, right? It's descended, it's descended, and it's resting on the hilltop, and it stays there. Uh, when the moon gets to the hilltop above the inn, the man in the moon just puts it in park, right? Gets out and goes uh, to drink his fill of the brown beer uh, at the Super Inn. Um, so, all, unfortunately, he doesn't have long to go. Once they bundle him into the moon uh, and get the horses uh, set up right, all they have to do is just wheel it on down the hill so it uh, so it sets. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we do have the feminine pronoun used with the sun. And Tony, you had wanted to talk about the capitalization of the sun and moon. This is clearly a gesture, I think, clearly a gesture of incorporating it within the Silmarillion mythology, especially the use of she as applied to the sun, which is very unusual, not utterly unheard of, but very unusual, mythologically speaking, right? But, of course, fitting uh, the Silmarillion mythology that we saw uh, you know, in the Silmarillion, uh, it's a female spirit who is the power behind the sun, who's driving the sun. Um, and uh, and yeah, the fiery eyes, that's the only part. The fiery eyes of the sun is, in my opinion, literally the only part of this, which sounds like a naturalized line from the Silmarillion mythology, right? Um, uh, so, you know, that's... Um, um, we do, we do get that right. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So how do we end our song? Right, having escalated and escalated until we reach the point where we're doing the nursery rhyme, right? And the nursery rhyme is at the apex of the the marvelous and crazy that's going on here, but at the super end, right? At the the 
the climax of the most marvelous night of you know where where the 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 good cheer at the end was so great that people are bounding from their beds and dancing on the floor um then we get the nursery rhyme and then everyone's going back to bed right we have the sun the moon sets the sun rises normality is restored right we kind of return out of this sort of little alternate fairy universe that we've been in though not entirely presumably the cat is still capable of playing the fiddle and the dog still laughs at jokes right um but um uh anyway um so uh yeah, I know you guys are talking about sun and moon mythologies. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very common for the sun to be male. Yes, Greek, Roman, Egyptian have have masculine sun figures. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm not saying it's unique. I'm just saying it's unusual and uh, and definitely fitting with the Silmarillion mythology. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Um, anyway... And again, the reason I bring that up here at the end is that I do think at the very end of this sta- of this poem, this final stanza seems to me a much stronger gesture towards naturalizing, as I say, you know, making this song into a, a naturalized citizen of Middle Earth in the Lord of the Rings world, right? Um, than it really has been throughout most of the poem leading up to this point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, is the final stanza part of the original? Um, well, I was actually just going to look that up. Let's look this up. So I'm getting out my copy of The Return of the Shadow here. Uh, let's see, where are we? Can somebody find it for me? I don't want to waste time searching. Um, I could probably find it in the appendix. Is it under Cat and the Fiddle? Do we get that? Yes, we do. Okay. I think I got it here. Yep. All right. All right. There's the troll song. Here's the cat and the fiddle song. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Um, I was pretty sure I remembered that. I wanted to double check to make sure. Yes. Uh, listen to the stanza, the final stanza in the original version. This is the version that was published um, back in the 20s. The round moon rolled off down the hill, but only just in time. For the sun looked up with fiery head and ordered everyone back to bed and the ending of the rhyme. Right. So the sun comes in like a parent, you know, sticking her head and sticking his or her head into the nursery and telling everybody not to knock it off and go to sleep. Right. Uh, The sun looked up with fiery head. There's no indication of gender there at all. Right. Um, That fire is associated with the sun. Not weird at all. Right. But um uh, but it's aggressively ungendered, Mike, absolutely. Uh, and ordered everyone back to bed in the ending of the rhyme. Um, so the specific femininity, right? She hardly believed her. We get three feminine uh, pronouns for the sun in two lines, right? Four in three lines, right? Um, uh, so, Mike, uh, uh, he's chosen aggressively to gender the sun. Right. Uh, in this not in gender, but gender, the sun uh, in this final stanza. And so yeah, this shift when he incorporates it into the Lord of the Rings and he decides to strongly emphasize the fact that the sun is feminine. Right. Again, that to me speaks of uh, a real intention to to uh, integrate the song 
into the Silmarillion mythology. Um, but, uh, but again, I, to me, it's not, it's not like it's the only one or the first one, but it's, uh, I think the most, um, uh, emphatic one, right? Okay. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's pretty much what we have time for tonight. Uh, I'm sure it doesn't surprise anyone that we spent the whole class talking about the poem. Um, you know, I think, um, um, uh, yeah, it's, and this is a long song too. Right. And thank you for indulging me because I've never really done that before. I've never really gone stanza by stanza. I've talked about this before. You know, we talked about this in my Tolkien's poetry class at Signum and stuff. Um, but I've never really taken the time to do like an entire class session going stanza by stanza through this poem before. Uh, so that was fun. Tune in next week when we will get back to um, the responses. Right. And of course, the disastrous after effects or effects of the second um, uh, the second singing of the song. Um, <laughs> yeah, Matt, fair enough. Matt says, if anything, it's surprising we made it all the way through the song. True. True enough. Well, we'll get to, uh, yeah, so Tarlonia, we'll get to Frodo's embarrassing of himself next time. I don't know if maybe we could actually finish the chapter next time. That seems a little bit rash, but uh, it's conceivable. I think it's, uh, I think it's, uh, I I think it's conceivable that we could actually get to the end of the chapter next time, but I'd have to hustle. We'll see. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to stop our book discussion there. We'll, and uh, uh, time to shift and do our do our field trip now. Uh, I will be here next week, but don't forget daylight savings. So if you live in a different country or in Arizona or Hawaii, uh, then uh, you'll um, uh, then it'll be at a different time. So don't forget that. Anyway. So thanks, everybody, for joining me. I will, again, I will see – I'm going to say goodbye to the Twitter folks, and we're going to shift over to uh, uh, to Twitch full-time here, twitch.tv slash SignumU, and we'll do our in-game field trip here as well. Thanks, everybody. Okay. All right. Good evening, everybody. This is Valori. All right. Thanks, Valori, for joining me again. We are ready. Sorry, I'm like stacking my sort of now tenuous stack of books over there. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Oh, wait, hang on. So we're not going to fellow up, I think. We're just going to kind of hang together. Oh, I see. Level seven. Yeah, that'll be fun. But no, you should be able to hang with us. Um, yeah, so just um, we're just going to we're just going to hang together in a group. We're going to be OK. We're not going to be in totally safe circumstances the whole time, but we're you signed the waiver, right? <laughs> we're still going to be in breeze, so uh, it okay. shouldn't get it shouldn't get too ugly. All right. Um, so we have been touring the other villages around Bree. Um, and uh, I want to head to Archard and the Chetwood. We've done we've looked at Staddle and Coombe and I want to I want to get to um, to Archard and the Chetwood, as I say. 
Sounds good. And then we'll circle back around. So I'm tempted, of course, to go to the um, to, to the Midgewater Marshes, but I, I'm I'm trying to save the Midgewater the Midgewater Marshes for when we get there in the book. Yeah, that'll be a long time from now, though. Yeah. Even if we do finish um, finish chapter nine next week, we still uh-huh. have you know. <laughs> we still have the Strider chapter. We still have a long conversation back in the parlor to happen before we get to any of that. Okay, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna run, I think. Oh, I can, okay. I, I guess I can mount up. I guess I can mount up. Alright. So let's see. Are Do we, we have anyone who doesn't have a steed? Let me see if that... I want to go through Kuma. Probably uh, best actually to go this way, right? Instead of going out. Yeah. Yep. Gate the normal way. That's right. Okay. I, don't I know. think that actually, I think that level seven is not. Does she have a horse? I don't know. I'm just checking. Oh, yeah. Possibly not. I love the high bridge. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to jump off the high bridge. That's faster. Isn't uh, it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And yeah. half the time you don't break your leg. Hey, I didn't. Look at that. Yeah, I think they move. I think they change. I don't know if there's a change in the ground or something like that. Maybe it's like Elrond's table. <laughs> right, exactly. The, the developers were just sick of hearing the crack of ankles. And the uh, the uh, the the sort of desks in the lower hall work the same way. Mm-hmm. If, if I turn it right, <laughs> I can always jump up from off from the balcony and land on a table and not break my. Oh. Uh. See, the, the sound has just completely, you know, deterred me from trying in most cases. <laughs> I hear that, yeah. And for those of you who, mean, are not, who are not players, um, when you jump off and, and land, you you there's a, a really... Really distressing sound. ...inducing, cr- crunching sound. Um, uh, I, 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 I want to shake the Foley artist's hand on that one. It's just... <laughs> it was, very well chosen, yes, but uh, it is uh, uh, hard to take after a while. And you get a whole group of people jumping off and landing down a cliff. It's uh, I can't wait till my burglar gets that safe all one. Yeah. All right, so here we are in the middle of Kung. I'm going to hang out here for a second while we wait for people to catch up with us. Here's the Coleman Waddle Inn. As we... Uh, as we saw before, we got through here in Combe last time. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see. We're going to head up to Archit, so that means I gotta, I'm going to head over this way. Right, this is the... I want to make sure I'm going, I'm pointing in the, in the correct one. Okay. All right, we'll go over there to the Chetwood fairly soon. But okay, we have everybody? I think we have everybody. All right. Let's head up to Archit. Now, of course, Archit gets burned down in the intro sequence. Uh-huh. Um, and the intro sequence, it's unclear to me. It was always unclear to me. I was a little distressed by the burning down of Archit the first yeah. time I played that. Not only because, you know, it's sort of sad to see a place that you, you know, whose name you're familiar with. Uh, from the book, uh, burned down. Um, but I was, I was, I was troubled by the chronology. Uh, Mm. and this was, 
Well, in... Now I'm forgetting. It's only when you're playing a hobbit, isn't it, that you see Frodo and Sam and Pippin going by at the beginning? Yes, that's right. All right, it's only when you're playing a hobbit. So I didn't get that because I yes. I started with Wigand. Um, the man in the intro to the... You just don't get that sequence at all in the human version, do you? Yeah, no. You just you wake up in the, the jail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so um, uh, I um, I wasn't even aware of the chronology at first. But after seeing that, I became a little, you know, I was told about it and I went and saw it and I was a little bit distressed or at least uncertain because if you're there seeing Frodo and Sam and Pippin walk by and it's in the Shire that you're seeing them walk by, right? So they are on the, if we go to the, go to the map, not the cute Archit map, nor the Breland map but the Shire map, right? Um, it's right here in the Green Hill Country. Um, uh-huh. You know, they're in Chapter 3. Yeah, near Odo's Leaf Farm, I believe it was. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so this is the three of them crossing the Shire. This is three as company. Um, and then in what, within game chronology, feels like immediately afterwards, you're an Archit and then after running around for a little while, there's a battle in Archit and Archit ends up getting burned down. And it sort of seems like that's before they're there in Bree. But when you finally get to Bree, Strider's there and the hobbits are also there, right? Mm, no, um, no, the hobbits have, aren't, um, not only, you're yet. only there with Celadine, Brandybuck, and, and the other Sackville. Yeah, yeah, no, in the intro sequence, yeah, but I'm thinking when you get to the Bree, when you get to the Prancing Pony. Yeah, no, no, they're not there. They've already left. Right, they've already left. So by the time yeah. you get to Bree, they've left already. Um, mm-hmm. So we're in, um, no, wait, but Strider's still there at the beginning. Uh... Yeah, they're in a different room. Yeah, okay, right? that's right. That's right. We start first. We start off with Strider, and then when we come back, Strider is gone. We're supposed to right. assume that he's met up with the hobbits and they've taken off. Right. Exactly. Um, so, and he's yeah. and I'm forgetting the dialogue in those. It's been a while since I've done, you know, book one of the the epic quest. Yeah. Um But in the initial in the in that initial sequence there. Does Strider mention that he is still waiting for them? So when you're questing with him and going back and reporting to Strider and and trying to figure out the whole I'm dear the ranger thing, that's while he's still waiting for the hobbits to show up. Yes. And then then you go off and yeah, then you go off and do your thing and you're supposed to believe that, you know, probably an evening has passed. The, The hobbits have come and gone with Strider the next morning. Right. And you just missed it. You know, you you miss yeah. Frodo's performance in the Prancing Pony. Um, by the way, I've always been disappointed that there's no like <laughs> session play for Frodo's song in the in the inn. You know, like yeah, I don't I don't know. Bring us on, quick! Get to a hiding place. Yeah, yeah. Now take it off. Who's this mysterious fellow in the corner? 
yeah, I, I really, I would love to see them do a Frodo meeting Strider and, you know, having his mishap with the ring session play. Let's see, if we did that, who would you session play as? Hmm. Mugwort. You would session play as Mugwort the Hobbit. That's what I, that's, that's, that's how I do it. That's how I do it, yeah. You maybe maybe it's Barlamin and you have to fight off the ranger who's trying but, to get at your poor right. guests. But the Sam, the problem with with session playing as Butterbur is that he's not there when when. Frodo oh, you're right. You're right. He only hears about it after invisible. the fact. Yeah. Um, I think you'd have to be Frodo, and you have to get out from safety, and then make sure you're not seen, and then come out when you're supposed to. It's true. If you actually want to have any, you know, like actions <laughs> that the person has to perform, uh, rather yeah. than just one of those session plays where you're observing something happening, which are really fun. Exactly. I mean, I love those. But, um, mm-hmm. but anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, you to, to actually Tony, uh, suggests Sam to, to session play as Sam, the only Hobbit who's actually keeping a low profile <laughs> in, the, in the common room that evening. I think Sam has more horse sense than we give him credit for. Yeah. 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 I think so. I think so. Uh, uh, Druid's Fire is suggesting doing the session play as uh, as Bill Fernie. That, that would be interesting. Or the squint-eyed yeah, southerner. The, the squint-eyed southerner, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Anyway. That's sort of a monster play. Exactly. Yeah, so I'm getting distracted here. My main question is chronology. So <laughs> I, I guess, I guess um, that we're supposed to understand that the whole time that you're there in Archit questing around, a lot of time passes, right? Yes. Um, but it's still before they get to Bree. So yeah, but then they send you back to Mickle Delving, and you're supposed to do the whole epic line in the Shire. In the Shire, right? If you play as yeah. a Hobbit, yeah, yeah. So, so um, I um, I think that they are trying to construct the chronology within the game. By the time Frodo and you know, by the time the events of Chapter Nine occur, by the time Frodo and 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 the Hobbits arrive at Bree and are in the common room with the prancing pony, Archit has recently burned down, according to yes. the game chronology, and that's uh-huh. tough. I think I, I I have a hard time with that. You know, um, like how could that not come up? You know. <laughs> oh, um, by the way, one of the towns just burnt down to the ground exactly i mean you'd think that the that such an event um would be so monumental that uh yeah you know nobody in the common room at the prancing pony would be talking about anything else right um and jj says well the arrival of visitors drove it out of their minds <laughs> exactly that's the thing that's yeah. kind of hard to take actually um well there's no accounting for east and west <laughs> yeah exa- apparently uh this is sort of making it there's no uh there's no uh there's no accounting for the middle really uh but mm-hmm. so i mean one thing that i guess i would say is i don't know i mean obviously this whole sequence right this whole uh-huh. opening sequence is like literally the oldest part, part of the game and <laughs> yes. you know I think that you know you can see some evidence of them not really kind of getting their stride yet in working out how the story is going like how the 
the story that they're telling is going to be related to the primary uh-huh. story. We see we see flashes of it, like the the meeting of of uh, Frodo and Sam and Pippin on the road, right? Um, does show or, us, or the fact that the or, yeah, or the fact that these hooded figures are looking for hobbits, even right. if they mistakenly got us. Right, exactly, exactly, and 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 I like the conceit of them having caught a Sackville Baggins and, uh, uh, and are, you know, are, are mistaking him for like the Baggins that they're looking for and seeking to interrogate him and stuff. Um, the fact that they have captured and are imprisoning and plan potentially, you know, most likely to torture, um, these other random hobbits also seems to me perfectly plausible, like just exactly the way that I would expect black riders to be acting in the, in in the Shire. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, anyway, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's there. So we can see a lot of really interesting sort of extrapolation there, but the main thing that I, I mean, later on in the story, we see them much in the, in the game story that is in the epic story, we see them much more successfully kind of paralleling the action to the story of the book. And, um, uh, it, it seems almost like at the beginning with the burning down of Archit, like there, it seems almost more like a kind of alternate universe world than it does sort of showing us what's happening around the outside of the published story, which is what we mm-hmm. end up getting for most of the rest of, uh, um, of the epic story and, uh, and, and a lot of that. So I don't know. I mean, this is me sort of, speculating but I just the reason I point that out is that something like that the burning down of Archit mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of other examples um, uh, of that kind of thing you know of because mm. ch- it's not going to change drastic. Right, so, something that drastic now again it's not drastic in the sense of I mean it's not like the story goes to Archit and they've totally changed the Archit story. I mean, we never visit Archit in the story. It could be burned <laughs> down for all we know, right? But, um, but, um, you know, again, like, it's, it, it, it doesn't really very plausibly fit, uh, within the story as we get it. And as opposed to the ones that, the towns that get burned down later in the game, which actually do fit in a lot better. Exactly. Exactly. Um, like and again, Dun- that, Dunlin and Rohan. That that commitment to having the epic quest line um, either follow the story in parallel or flesh out details of the story that, I mean, even by the time we get to book four, um, uh-huh. we're involved in doing things like spending a whole long quest line fulfilling the promise of one sentence in the Fellowship of the Ring, right? <laughs> we're told that scouts are sent out uh, you know, searching for the for the black riders and you know accounting for all their horses and things like that. Um, in one sentence, we're told that that's a thing that happens, right? And yeah. so, and even I love the fa- and I loved this so much, and I still love this. This is uh, uh, this is really the the moment when I totally fell in love with the epic story in Lotro is yeah. when they, when they, cause we're told of course in the fellowship of the ring that only eight horses were found. Right. But we're not, we're mm-hmm. not, just, you know, immediately eight horses were found and, and that's all we're told. Right. Um, 
But then the fact that we get this whole like, but where was the ninth horse? Right? What yes. happened to the ninth horse? There's got to be a story there, right? And Elrond's all concerned about the ninth horse and and what happens. Um, you know, I um, I love that and that 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 kind of storyline, right? That whole category of adaptation uh, to take a little detail from the story and say. What was the story about? You know, we're not told that story, but what was the story behind that? And to use that <laughs> as the mechanism of expanding into the, you know, the story for the for for gameplay. Yeah, I think that's really really cool. I think that's really really fun. Yeah, um, no, I'm with you on that one totally. And we don't, uh, you know, and even even things like the the Lone Lands, which we'll get you know into uh, a little bit later uh-huh. on in our tours. Um, but even the, you know, the sort of very different stories that are going on up in Gartha Garwin and stuff like that, which, as I say, we'll see soon. <laughs> or or um, just taking reference of Forkel and building a whole world around that. Yeah, exactly. Those are more pure, you know, these are like, you know, possible interesting stories that are happening off the, off the, you know, the radar. So we can, we can add them, you know, we can, we can fill in <laughs> stuff. Um and they can be Bernie and not distract us from the main story. Exactly, things can set fire, can be set fire to, and and, and we'll be okay with it. Um, anyway, so you know this this as a as a piece of adaptation, I find the burning of Archit awkward in ways that the Lotro story tends not to be awkward. Um, uh-huh. And I um you know it's hard for me not to conclude that the reason for that is they they just kind of you know got more adept at that as they as they move through. Um, uh-huh. And it does seem to, it does seem contrary to the idea that we're met with in Bree, the idea, the fact that the war has not reached here. Right. Yes, exactly. Now, um, well, we'll get to, I, I want to follow that up a little bit, but I'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the, um, we get to the Chetwood. I want to get out into the Chetwood a little bit. But um, so there's not too much to see in Burned Down Archit here. I know. That uh, awesome tavern with awesome signs burnt down. Yeah, what was it? It was the Badger, wasn't it? Drunken Badger? The Drunken Badger, was, yeah. What was I it? The Drunken Badger. Oh, Something. Mad Badger. The, the Mad, Mad Badger, Badger right, in here yeah, it is. The Mad Badger. There's the sign on the ground. It is so cool. I want to see the sign. Yeah, it's down here right, by the there. mailbox. All right, yes. Best pub sign ever. Hey, look, the badger's standing on its head. Yes. Just like the cow and the horses. <laughs> yes, he does have that sort of feel. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. All right. So let's see. What are we... Anything that we can learn from... Of course, we can see architecturally... Um, very much like Brie, stone and wood houses, of course, a little too much on the wood side. What with the fire? Uh-huh. Um, this fountain is interesting. Doesn't this fountain look really old? Yeah. I've got like the rust deposits under the spouts. Yeah. This fountain looks super old compared to the rest of the town. It's not flammable like the rest of the town. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, what's this over here? Just a random pile of, it's a stick. It's a bush. Why is there a random plinth here in the middle of the alley? I don't, 
Uh, looks like it was part of some support thing. Weird. I don't know. Strange, they were their horse rings. <laughs> strange architecture here in Argent. Um, um, but well, yeah. it's basically the half timber stuff like we saw. Right, exactly. Though we don't get as many stone buildings uh, because, of course, we don't have as much of the... There's no evidence of any, apart possibly from the fountain, um, we don't get any evidence of Numenorean building uh-huh. here in Archit. The whole thing... Yeah, there's hardly the, any masonry. Yeah, from the wooden palisade uh, to the uh, largely Tudor-style wooden buildings. We get some... Like this building is a stone building, but this building is all made of that darker native stone that we saw in Brie, not the yeah. stuff that looks like recycled ruin. Yeah. Um, thanks. Now, we, we, do, we do get, there's a ruin over there, right? So I know that there's one separate, but my point is, Archard is not itself built on a ruin. Um, the no, way it's like Brie they... obviously is. Yeah, it's like they didn't want to... Hang on, i got to kill some guys so they don't... Oh, yeah. Hurt our new friend. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, they didn't want to take. Yeah, they didn't want to. They didn't want to take advantage of like the pre-made structure to build upon that. Yeah. Yeah. In, in either case, the, here or the roost. Yeah. yeah, and you can see the uh, the the ruin here, the the uh, Arnorian structure clearly much more of a well it's not exactly very fortification ish it's built up on a hill but this looks with all these columns it's it's not walled this is a this is a sort of a pleasure building isn't it yeah this definitely looks like a yeah palace more than a colonnades and open the the fortress is on the other side where the blackwolds are yes Yes. That's the fortified part. This is definitely more. Oh, look at this beautiful colonnade. Look at yeah, this. Yeah, uh, this is for this high this tower. Is for the view, right? Yeah, pretty much. Ah, the lovely fertile valley. Yeah. Yeah, the, all these different kind of terraces building up. Oh yeah, there. and the big, big rotunda at the top. Yeah, exactly. Um. Right, whereas, as we can see straight ahead, we can see a Numenorean, an Arnorian wall. Uh-huh. And a, t- a tower there. What is this, a watchtower? Oh, where are you? Where are you? Everyone's on the top of the, at the rotunda. Where'd Sorry. you go? I went galloping <laughs> off. I just saw a ruin in the <sighs> distance and started making for it. Sorry. I'm up. I'd hate to be on vacation now. with you someday. You're going to be like this in England, aren't you? You're just... <laughs> Where did the professor go? Oh, he's just, you know. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Here I am. I'm, I'm, Bell I'm on the, the Thames. Road. I don't know. <laughs> I'm on the road in the open here. On the road in the open. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, went, I went, yeah, I went herring off towards it. Sea ruin in the distance. You know, that's, uh, that's what's, Yeah. What else? Seventy three was just saying. I was looking for an elephant to walk under. Ha ha ha! <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Man, I, I can't. I, you I, get to London, you're going to be like a ferret with pixie sticks, oh, man. <laughs> just I, looking at all these things. <laughs> I love it. 
I love it. I used to live there. I used to live in Golder Screen. Cool. Yep. Highly recommend um, Hampstead Heat. It's one of the nicest parks, I think, that I've been to. And they have a nice replica of a Roman colonnade you can just walk around in. Yeah. Neat. Neat. I'm trying to figure out this over here. Like, that over there is simple enough, right? This is clearly, as you were saying, the fortification that the other one is not. So the other one is the, you know, a little, like, I don't know what, jumbo gazebo or whatever. This is, this is a fortification. Um, we've got our seven-pointed, our seven seven-pointed stars above the... Mm-hmm. Well, we've got the Arnorian Star and the Scepter of Anuminus up in the Keystones. Yep. We've even got our little brambles, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lining that. So we're seeing all the things that we've seen before, like in the Barrow Downs and other places. I'm just trying to figure this thing out. What the heck is this? Why do we have this over here? What's a tower doing over here? Uh, watchtower for the fortress, I suppose. I guess. I mean, it's slightly higher ground. It just seems you're going to build a watch. There's another one on the other side of the valley, too. Is there? Yes. I tried to get up there once, and I couldn't do it, but... Like, way over by the valley? So, like, over by... Yeah, you can can see it from here. You can see it from here. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, on the other side of the... On the other side of Of the... the, Of the valley. Of the... Of Of the the whole out... Right. It's like on, on, on the side of the lake. Uh-huh. Well, not just not just the Oh, that's no, that's where the the fortifications to stop them from getting into Arshit. No, look look across uh look uh west from here. Right. Okay. Look where I'm pointing. I don't see a ruin. Okay. Uh, I have my I have my graphics on really low. Maybe that's it. Maybe there's a ruin. Oh, there is. I'm just sure you can't. See. Oh, there's trees in the way. That's why. Okay. Yeah, I'm seeing trees. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's because my graphics are set so low because I didn't want to freeze up. Right. But yeah, there is. There are at the other on the cliffs on the other side of the valley, uh, another set of fortifications similar to these, and uh, it makes you feel like you know the fortifications are like protecting something, but the big stuff on the edge of the valley is sort of keeping watch and protecting the valley. Right. D- did there used to be? Are we supposed to understand there was a wall across this whole valley? Like, was maybe. this meant to guard a frontier or something? Maybe it. Maybe it was like maybe the the palace in the middle was like the castle, and everything else was the village that was inside the fortifications. Maybe. Maybe. Um, oh, JJ is right. The moon is uh, is coming down onto the hilltop. It looks like the man in the moon is heading to the prancing pony here pretty soon. Yeah, now that one's got a beer belly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a very full moon. Definitely. Um, okay, so here within, let's go into the let's go into the ruin here. Let's look inside the fortification. Okay. I better take point then. Um, Wolf guard. Let's see. Here we go. So, these dudes that we get in here... Ooh, look at that big old Scepter of Anuminus up there. 
So within these ruins, we get um, we get uh, brigands, right? The black wolves. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, now. The story of the Blackwolds is kind of interesting, right? We know that brigandage is going to become an issue, right? Yeah. Um, brigandage? Brigandage, that yeah. Sounds burglarious. It, doesn't it? That's a great word. I love that word. Um, uh, uh, you, uh, if you, uh, you're almost like obligated if you use the word brigandage to also use the word outlawry. Uh, which, are, which are both really fun words. Uh, but yes, because the Blackwolds um, participate in all manner of brigandage and outlawry. And um, uh, anyway, they're, 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 it's, it's fun. So I, I like the way that the, we get these encampments, right? And it makes all kinds of sense that if you do have a brigand problem, Right, that your brigands are going to be holding up, and all they have all of these convenient ruins all over the place. Um, oh yeah, you know that the ruins of old Arnor are going to provide a lot of of uh, hideouts um, for local brigands, and um, I think that that I, that's a really interesting element of the story. I think that the brigands that we get in you know by the end when we when we are told in the Return of the King. Um, that um, uh, that they had a real set to in in Bree, and that they've been having a problem with with robbers uh, around. Um, it makes all kinds of sense that they would already have been beginning to be a problem. Now, the really interesting thing is the choice that they make to have the the local outlaws not just be from the south, but from the north, right? Um, you know, one of the things that you can see in the Bree story as they unfold it here is that we get the influence of both sides, right? We get the, yes. the, the, the southern influence of the people coming up from Isengard, you know, the White Hand folks who are, you know, some of the people coming up the Greenway are honest refugees, as we've seen, but not all of them are. Um, some of them are actual spies and troublemakers uh, in uh, League with Saruman. Um and that's the story that I expected. So I was totally unsurprised to find brigands around here, and I thought that was cool. I'm like, okay, they're they're out here on the outskirts. They're having more problems with them here in Archit, but it hasn't gotten debris yet. You know, it will, you know, soon, but it but it hasn't yet. And I like that. But um, but uh, it they go a step beyond that by having the brigands here get being connected to Angmar in the north. Now, as I'm recalling, in the epic quest lines at the beginning, it's not that Angmar has caused the brigands. Angmar is recruiting the brigands, right? So Angmar is reaching out from the north, and they're trying to recruit the brigands um, to sort of help to further their own ends down here. Um, uh, yes, exactly, JJ. So that's what I recalled. The Blackwolds are the locals. Um, and I really liked that, too, 
because what we see um, in that overall plot line is essentially a sort of a parallel to or even a kind of um, rehashing of uh, uh, or actually a very sort of Tolkienian parallel uh, like this sort of figurative thing that Tolkien does all the time where you have a story you know back in the first age happening with like really big characters like Fingon rescuing Mithros and then you have almost the same exact story played out again in the third age where this time it's Frodo rescuing Sam from the Tower of Kirith Ungol um, uh-huh. but it's you know very deliberately parallel and almost the same thing um, but so you know these kinds of stories that repeat themselves again and again though often getting sort of smaller in scale as we get as we move forward and it seems to me that the story that they build in the epic quest line in the game about the relationship between angmar and the local gang of of brigands um here in the chetwood uh is um does the same kind of thing right just as the witch king of angmar comes down and influences the people of Rudauer and the Hillmen, you know, there. Yeah, sort of Mendelbrot storytelling. Yeah, exactly. We get that we get that kind of that kind of relationship. Um, sort of microcosms of the same yeah, stories playing out. That's really cool. Um, that's really cool, yeah. But anyway, okay, so let's we've we've got somebody's seen carvings. I need I need oh. to Oh over here. Yeah. I see okay. That. Oh, yep, those are our friends from uh, yeah, didn't we from the Barrow Downs. In, yeah, in the Barrow Downs. That's what I thought. Uh-huh. Hmm. I don't think, do we see them in this configuration, three of them next to each other like this? Stylistic I think so. Similar. I don't remember Back in the this. Bone Man's Palace, I think it was on yeah, the maybe. Uh, um, South Barrow Downs. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I couldn't figure out what the heads looked like, whether it was an armor or whether it was some sort of skull. Yeah. No, this is obviously armor. We don't, they're not crowned. They could just be warriors, but of course we know the crown of Gondor was a helm, you know, a helm, yeah. Helm, so. Winged helm. Yeah. Uh, so this could well be. I mean, you know, the most obvious suggestion would be Elendo, Isildur, and Inarian. But, excuse me, I don't know. Well, you're talking about uh, history repeating itself. These might have been another father and sons group that... uh, It's possible. ...of similar fame. It's possible. The reason I'm skeptical that this would be Elendo, Isildur, and Inarian is that they're almost identical these three yeah i'd expect a wendell to be a little more prominent if it's the that grouping of three you know Uh um now they do seem to have the seven stars around their heads there yeah which you know would certainly seem to mark them as as numenorean maybe they have close resemblance (laughs) yeah it doesn't necessarily prove that it's you know elendo a silver and an arian but 
That's true. Also keep in mind the fact that if they are Numenorean, their ages might not reflect as much. The father might look very similar to his sons. Sure, yeah, and I wouldn't, I mean, uh, Amethorn, of course, just points out very correctly that Elendil was quite tall. Yes, I wouldn't necessarily expect in a, you know, in a, in a set of carvings like this for them to be, have, uh, for the, for the carvings to be that verisimilitudinous. Sorry, I made that yes. word up, but it's one of my favorite words that I made up um, <laughs> because I always thought there really needed to be an adjectival form of verisimilitude. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I always, I look forward for weeks for opportunities to use the adjective verisimilitudinous. Um, but anyway, I don't think that they would be that verisimilitudinous. They wouldn't be, um, you know, I, if if someone's making a statue of two, especially framed the way these are, right? Uh-huh. You're not going to have a Wendell be like four inches taller than a Sildur or whatever, you know. Like I, I that's I, true. I, yeah, I, really I mean that. that's true. Yeah. But also look at the grouping. There's just these three, and then there's nothing else in the entire building. So these yeah. three obviously are are meant to be right, possibly different. But also as an artist, I like to take shortcuts and use copy paste a lot. So <laughs> right, that, that they do seem to be very similar. Yeah. I mean, yeah, look, they're using the same themes everywhere here, so. Yeah. Probably um, have a stencil. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's likely that it's meant to suggest the three of them, even if they're not really differentiated in the... Mm-hmm. Um, in the carvings. Yeah, so we've seen throughout history that, you know, artist interpretations don't always reflect life. Right. Right. And there could even be a symbolic function to having them look almost identical, right? To be representing, Mm -hmm. you know, those three kings, you know, the three Numenorean family members that came over. The three kingdoms united. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, to sort of show them as sort of peers rather than as hierarchical in that way. Rivals. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. So, and we see. I've been talking about the Chetwood, but of course, we're not actually in the Chetwood. We're still in the Greater Archit area here. Yeah, we have to go back out to. Uh, to Coom. Yeah. yeah Coom. Yes. Way. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're running low on time. Let's uh, let's continue. Let's finish Archit, and then we can go out to the environs next time. I'm now headed over to the lake. I want to head over to the spidery bits of the ruins. Yep. We'll have to definitely do that on foot. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I don't know. I don't know that we want to uh, actually enter the cave, um, <laughs> but um, I still retain bad memories of that cave from back when I was 
<laughs> Level nine. Uh, <laughs> did you stumble across that big spider before you were ready to? Oh, did I ever? Yeah, I didn't die. <laughs> I didn't die, but I ran screaming from the cave, kiting like fifteen or twenty spiders behind me. Uh, oh, I see one of those every now and then. It brings back memories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So this sort of maze is kind of interesting again trying to figure you know the kind of layers within layers of walls and um oh and i love the guy who's like careful there are spiders here and there's like spiders crawling all around him um yeah yeah think bud yeah yeah it's it's almost like it was designed to so people could wait behind things to uh to get them as they pass through yeah, like this is some like a a very um, a very uh, 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 you know tightly guarded pass or or like concentric defense um, the bottleneck technique. Yeah, and I'm trying to like I don't totally get it, like why it should be like the the you're know, trying to understand the the kind of especially since as we saw. The town that's on the other side, you know, and here we get the the palisade the wall, stick. right, which is just the modern arched wall, and the buildings behind it are are the modern wood as well. So, was there like was this where they were guarding from or to like what? Anyway, I'm just like the uh, uh, yeah, it does sort the of imply there was totally, something there's. There's like something, it does imply that Archid is built on something we don't see. Yeah. It, 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 like it really kind of does. And especially with a location up here in the corner, you'd think this would be a, a charming yeah. defensive position. Um, but it burnt down, fell over, and sank into the swamp kind of thing. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Oh, and yes, the gate is not here in the, in the intra area. It's only here. Well, it wasn't a gate. It was, a, it was just a... It's that's just a, just a gap. It's just a it's wall, just a yeah. Gap it's a, a gap yeah. that's been made in the wall. Um, yeah. Exactly, after the... But the only thing they have around them, which is trees. Yes, yes. Yeah, in the battle. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. The only thing that didn't burn. Now, Archit has an enormous jail again. Yeah. And yeah. Archit is a small little village and the prison is like the biggest building in the whole village really yeah, it makes you wonder if it's multifunctional it's like it's the jail it's also the function house it's also where we <laughs> hold the balls it's just... <laughs> right exactly it's where everybody has their wedding receptions you know in yeah the, in the prison like you do um at the historic arch at jail yard <laughs> exactly um, yeah, they probably have a craft brewery or something in here. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. It burned down. Now, see what they did. Oh, no, they got, they got barrels up Look over at here. That. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Craft brewery over here. Totally. Totally. Yeah, you called it. Yeah. Yeah, figured. Okay. Yeah, multiple. It says that it's the jail yard, but that doesn't necessarily mean everything here is the jail, though. That's right. And it's not Archit in the opening sequence. It's not Archit where you're imprisoned, is it? Um, 
I don't actually know. It might be, actually, because, yes, I think you came in through some... Yeah, I guess you were in one of these, you know, massive jails. It's like, this, is this a town or a penal colony? Yeah, let's see. You're right, because this is one of the gates you had to go through and then fight the brigands off over here. and Crazy. I, I got a bit turned around, though, so I'm not quite sure. But... Right, yeah, okay, because this is... Right, this is the courtyard with the old fountain and then if I come around here and go back through this other gate it, it looked like this but it wasn't this I don't think it was actually part of this uh, landscape I think it was a yeah, landscape made out of similar uh, jail yards and jail cells and stuff like that but you can't access it here or it's just made out of the same right. you know, the same boolean images <laughs> right yeah yeah um Okay, good. O'Malley is pointing out that it says that Amdir escaped with his charges to Archit. So, uh -huh. okay, wait. Escaped. Wait. O'Malley, I'm not remembering that. So. Yeah, at the very beginning, you guys escape to Archit. That's where you're seeking refuge after being rescued. After Amdir is injured. Yes. Yes. Tragic. And he gets injured, like, first off. Okay, yeah, right. Okay. See that that that's a good one. It sets a precedent that the Rangers can't do anything right, and will ask you to do everything. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and I did always really like how they use Amdir to 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 as an anticipation, right, of uh, of Frodo's wound. So you can actually see what the you know we're we're told that you know it's really impressive how um, you know Frodo holds up under his wound does not succumb to it. Um, yep. And of course in Amdir we're shown the course of of that kind of wound, you know, well, normal. After only a few days. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, whereas you know, Frodo bears it for weeks. So, yeah. Okay. Alright, so it's not in the Archit jail that you are incarcerated in the opening sequence. It's just somewhere in the Blackwold's camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, we are getting towards the end of our time. It's midnight now. I should probably... Yep. It's getting late. I should let people go. Um, we will search around the environs around the villages, having now explored each of the Breland villages. We'll, we'll sort of see what they're doing in, in the landscape around and how they've set up... Uh, uh, how they've set up the 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 land the sort of the the land of Bree, not just the the village of Bree. Um, so uh, so yeah, so thanks everybody for joining me tomorrow night. I'll be back for the War of the Ring. We'll, we'll be talking about the uh, the voice of Saruman finishing part one of the War of the Ring. So that'll be that'll be cool. That's ten p.m. tomorrow evening, Wednesday night. Assuming I still have power, we're going to be getting like oh, a foot of snow tomorrow night so Good luck. Um, there's a, a non-zero chance that I'll lose power in which case in which case oh, uh, dear. class will be suddenly cancelled but hopefully um, uh, we will uh, um, we'll sort it but anyway so <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens 
but so Lord willing and I don't lose power I'll be back tomorrow night 10pm for Mythgard Academy War of the Ring uh, and uh, and we're, we're going to continue we've got uh, Silm Film and uh, Grifflet back again this Friday so uh, so that'll all be good so hopefully see you guys again soon and thanks for joining us Good night now bye, bye guys bye Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.